I deliberately uh, included the renunciations of non-judging, renouncing judging, renouncing comparing, and renouncing fixing at the beginning of the meditation because we're going to be dealing with a topic tonight which can invite at times in us through a particular situation we're in right now or a situation we've been in before or a situation we're anticipating going into where we fall into judging, comparing, and fixing. And that topic is living skillfully with the difficult. How to live skillfully with the difficult. For those of you who are, like to read, it's chapter 19. It's based coming from chapter 19 in Emotional Chaos to Clarity. And it is a challenge for us to learn to be mindful in a way that we don't get lost in content so that we are careful to see that we're interested in the phenomena of how we're relating to what's happening in our mind rather than the content. Because sometimes we get a little bit of uh, concentration and then the content seems even more juicier. So if we're feeling sorry for ourselves, boy, we can really feel sorry for ourselves. If we're angry, we can really feel self-justified in our anger. If we're wanting something, it can seem so delicious because we're more present. So the initial experience is whatever the hindrance of mind that's coming up. Mindfulness is the staying with the experience long enough so that we are no longer dazzled by the content of what we're experiencing and we're able to see its true nature. So there's certain qualities about anger or certain qualities about desire or feeling sorry for oneself or restlessness. There are certain qualities and it's those qualities that, that the Buddha was pointing to to have us notice in order to find freedom from what hinders our minds, what closes down our hearts. I begin tonight with that as an as a introduction because as we turn to the difficult in our lives, then we may well find some of those hindrances of mind arising. I did this uh, version of this talk last night for my Sunday Sangha, which meets every Sunday in San Rafael. You can, I guess there's flyers in the back if you'd like to pick up a flyer. We meet six to eight. And the, the reason I uh, did this talk at this time is this last week, I, in, in both my Dharma role and also as my Life Balance Institute for Leaders, I encountered a lot of stories of people having to live with the difficult and oftentimes not doing so so skillfully. It was, it was just one of those weeks where one person after another had just this really tough story, that this tough situation they were having to deal with. To just give you some examples from just this one week, that uh, one situation had it was in one area was in the medical area, where one person was dealing with this chronic stomach uh, problem that was really starting to. Uh, debilitate them in terms of life and it there was no end in sight. Another person was having, uh, which I of course identified with because I have this difficulty, they were having a major problem with a knee. They had really injured their knee and they didn't know what they were going to do about it and they were in acute pain. I just came from an orthopedic uh, surgeon getting little shots in my knees before I got here tonight. So from the surgeon's office to you. And then another person was dealing with um, with cancer, and uh, the, um, uh, the just the beginning of that of that long journey that one undergoes when one is having to deal with cancer. And then another person was struggling in terms of a, a financial setback, and two other people were having work-related difficulties of real consequence. In one instance uh, where it could easily be they would have to leave because of not getting along with the, the, uh, with their, uh, the, they were number two and this person was number two and the number one person 
uh, was going in a way they could not support. And so there are major difficulties. And then I also, in the same week, uh, personal betrayals of various sorts. Uh, one person who uh, felt as though they had really been betrayed and another person who felt as though they had really uh, made a mess out of their relationship and was totally caught in the, the, the guilt feelings around that. And it goes and it goes. So uh, we all, at various times in our lives, are going to have to deal with that which is difficult. You come here to hear the Dharma, to sit in silence. The Dharma the Buddha taught is a Dharma that can be lived. What use is the Dharma if it's only for some future moment when you're going to be totally liberated? That was not the way the Buddha was teaching. He was a radical in his time. He was actually saying, you don't have to depend on others to find liberation. You can find liberation for yourself, and it starts right now. In this moment, whether or not you fall into clinging, grasping, whether you get lost in greed, hatred, and delusion, or you don't, that you can develop this capacity of choice. And he laid out a path for doing that, for developing this capacity of choice. And uh, so that the, the, the liberation uh, can be a, a theoretical thing that we take a kind of band-aid comfort in, but we don't really let it liberate our lives, or we can choose to take the understandings that we have now and that we hear and start to really apply it in our lives. And where is a great place to apply it? When we're encountering the difficult. What happens to us when we encounter the difficult. So to begin that process, I have a question. We're not going to answer this out loud. We're going to each answer it for ourselves. And that question is, do you believe that you can live skillfully with a major difficulty? Do you believe that it's possible? Not that you absolutely know you can, but that it's possible that you might be able to? Is it possible? So just think for a moment about that. (laughs) However you answered that for yourself, it has been my experience that oftentimes, at least in certain areas of people's lives, they, unbeknownst to them many times, do not really believe that they have this possibility around a major difficulty. They, they have this uh, uh, dread that they can only collapse, that they can only do poorly when there's a major difficulty. It's not the way I witness it in person after person that's been practicing the Dharma. That the mindfulness, the loving kindness, the ability to stay present, all of these factors work together to allow us to live skillfully with a difficult situation when it arises. It doesn't mean we always will. It doesn't mean that the difficult situation stops being difficult. That's its nature. That is actually more important than the specifics of it. Oh, this is difficult. This is dukkha. This is hard to deal with. I am uncertain as to what to do. I don't seem to have any options. There's and on and on and on. That's why we have to practice. Is Because in those situations, it is very hard to stay mindful, to stay present, to stay open to the possibility open to the possibility. And yet, we can. We can bring our dharma into our daily lives in a way that liberates these moments. Not completely, not perfectly, but enough so that our sense of well-being is dramatically affected and our faith in our practice Faith, not faith as a belief, but faith as this confidence. Because one of the the 
factors that's considered key in, in inner development in Buddhism is faith, but not as a belief, but faith as this confidence, this sense that, yes, it may be possible. The Buddha says, Eipasako, come see for yourself. Come see for yourself. To go see for yourself requires a kind of faith. Well, if I know that I can't do this, why would I bother? That's why doubt is what I term the mother of all the hindrances, because it stops us cold. We never really find out what our capacities are. But if we have that sense of, well, I've been able to do certain things that were really difficult. I've lived through some tough situations before, so maybe I can live through this one too. How would I stay present? How would I bring my inner life into the practical of this situation, which is so difficult for me? How would I do that? How can I make this difficult situation my teacher? How can I let it be the stimulation of my practice rather than an obstruction to my practice? Once we start to reorient this way, many things can happen. As we become mindful of how we are around the difficult, we start to see that difficulty is part of life. There is no one that's exempt from the difficult. The Buddha had a wonderful teaching about this in regards to a woman who had uh, had her baby die. And it's, it's, there's a whole story about this and how the Buddha dealt with this woman who had really lost her mind uh, in her grief and how he helped her discover the truth that the difficult is part of life. So it's, it's the sutta on the mustard seed, if you want to look it up. It's also true, as we come to be more mindful of the difficult, that we really see that making mistakes is part of life, an inevitable part of life. It's not something unique to you or unique to me. We all make mistakes, sometimes terrible mistakes, and so it's not the fact that mistakes are made that's the issue. The issue is how are we going to relate once those mistakes are made? There's a way of relating uh, that is bringing about a cycle, a, a, a vicious cycle, as opposed to virtuous, a vicious cycle of repeated suffering. And there is a way of relating when we've made a mistake that brings about a, a sense of well-being, a virtuous cycle. And it's all whether we go into reactive mind, where we get into grasping, clinging, aversion, greed, or we go into responsive mind. And I, I talk about this difference in reactive and responsive mind in depth in Emotional Chaos to Clarity, so I'm not doing that tonight. It's also true that we often don't get what we want. Everybody knows this. I can see the instant recognition. Yes, that's true. I know that. That's one I know. Check that one off. I've got that far in the Dharma. But you know, we forget it in any given instance when we really wanted it. We, uh, we think life's unfair, and it is unfair from our ego's perspective sometimes. Although the Buddha says it's all lawful. That's another thing to be explored on another evening. And we start to see that we are, we are collapsing around our disappointment of not getting what we want. And we can see that that collapsing into our disappointment is like shooting ourselves with that second dart that the Buddha teaches. Where now we not only have our disappointment but now we have this uh, judgment of ourselves, having failed our expectations and so forth. So now we're adding a whole nother level of, of suffering in our lives, of difficulty. And we also see that there, oftentimes in our lives, when we have something we want, it's not stable. We can't keep it. We can't stay in balance with it. It's the nature of this world, what the Buddha called anicca, that it is the tendency of all things to change. Change in small ways, change in large ways, that it's all changing. 
and for our ego. This is such an insult. It's, uh, it creates a, such an, uh, a feeling of worthlessness or uncertainty or helplessness or vulnerability, uh, of incompetence feelings. And so we have to learn how to be with these experiences as they, as, as they naturally come up in the mind around the difficult. But we can do so through our mindfulness and through our, our compassion. I've taken to talking about mindfulness as compassionate mindfulness and saying that it's compassionate mindfulness, not just mindfulness. Because without this compassion, so much of the life has, is, is, is tough. Reading the newspaper, uh, witnessing in your own life, that without there being a strong, strong balance of compassion with the mindfulness, it's too hard. And so we run away. We run away. We won't stay with the difficulty in our own lives and the lives of our loved ones and the lives of our larger communities. And then there is the difficulty when we are the ones who have let down someone in some way or else someone has let us down. What a difficult situation. Either way. And uh, I can remember conversation about which is worse to have someone let you down or for you to have let down someone else. I always voted on the side. I would much rather be let down than have let someone down. But I've, some of my friends are the other way around because they say, no, if I've let someone down, I can learn from that and I, will, I, will, I, I, w- I would get better. But if someone's let me down, then I, I can't do anything about it and I feel so helpless. And I go, oh, no, that's not the way to look at that. And so the conversation goes... So this, this existence of the difficult is represented in the Buddha's first noble truth, which I, I talk about in Dancing with Life, that there is this dukkha in life, dukkha meaning uncertainty, uh, this stress, this unease, this kind of disappointment, this not quite satisfactory, not having any lasting quality to it in a way of arriving, one never quite arrives, there's always something that's either a little wrong or a lot wrong. And if this moment it feels just right, then we know we're going to lose this moment where it's just perfect. And so there's this dukkha, this existential dilemma to this realm. Not that all is suffering, but it, that, that there is this entwining of the dukkha as an experience from the individual's point of view or from a, a group point of view this dukkha, this unsatisfactoriness, this unreliability. And so the difficult is a prime example of that. And how to live with the difficult then becomes a practice in working with the first and I would say the second noble truths. So some signs of of unskillful living with the difficult. These ways that that show when we're having some trouble living with the difficult. And you can see if you relate to any of these. There can be a kind of rigidity in the body where we feel this rigidity maybe all over our body or in one part of our body. There's a kind of feeling of rigidity that we're stuck with. around. That's our stress response. That's that fight, flight, or freeze syndrome happening. Those of you who know trauma work, that's happening around the difficult. We're in some way being traumatized by it and it's showing up in the body. Or there could become a, quite a hardness to our mind. So that what we're touching around that, it's the mind's hard. It, it can't really uh, penetrate what we're having to deal with because the mind's so hard, it can't, everything's kind of at a distance. Or uh, uh, there's, uh, there's a feeling of a kind of uh, hard edge to our experience, not even just in the area of difficulty, but it starts to seep out into other parts of our lives and a very uh, uh, unpleasant experience and starts to limit us. Or another unskillful way that many of us at times will relate to the difficult is that we will space out in some way. Just sort of space out. We're just, we're just not present. Sometimes we leave our bodies. That's, some people will describe that to me in some detail. But other times we're sort of there in our bodies, but our minds just aren't engaging. It's a natural response, and it may be in that moment the best we can do 
until we have new tools to do better. So we're not condemning any of these, but we're seeing the limitation of these kinds of reactions to uh, the difficult. Or it may be that for you, you fall into a huge resentment towards world, towards the world, towards the immediate source of the difficult, towards God, towards nature, all of these different ways that we can resent and, uh, uh, in that way. Or we can turn on ourselves. And we can turn on ourselves by a harsh inner speech, which is quite common around the difficult. And that harsh inner speech would not meet the Buddha's criteria for wise speech or right speech. Because he, he asked for speech that is, that, is, that is kind and timely and true and useful. And so in that way, when we're practicing inner speech, is we become mindful of, well, this is really, this is harmful speech towards myself. We are encouraged to move beyond that. Or in our, our, our frustration with the difficult, we can fall into a kind of self-hatred. We can't stand ourselves, our incompetency, our, uh, our lack of, of strength or our lack of willpower, or whatever it is that we just that it would be occasioned by this particular situation. And it goes into a form of self-hatred. Again, which is the opposite of the loving-kindness that the Buddha teaches. And we can do this without ever thinking about, oh, this isn't following the Eightfold Path. I don't want to do this. I want to do my practice in this situation. So yes, I'm disappointed in me, but I will bring loving-kindness to this disappointment with myself. I will bring compassion to this disappointment with myself. Or we can, we can uh, fall into a kind of punishing ourselves around the difficult. So if something's gone wrong in some way, and then we start to deny ourselves still other things because there's some degree that we're not finding ourselves acceptable. And maybe we don't even notice this. So I ask you when you started to sit tonight to make yourself comfortable. And I said, if you need to squirm around at the first to get comfortable, do so because sitting is challenging enough without imposing another level on yourself of getting all uncomfortable and not moving in that discomfort. And so it is with punishing ourselves. I, I see people, uh, they won't like give themselves time out in nature or they won't get some body work or they won't uh, go to a funny movie because they're so mad at themselves, they don't feel as though they deserve that. And I'll go, no, it's just the opposite. This is really what you need to do. And so we become our own tormentor around the difficult, and mindfulness can see that. And sometimes we discover that we are actually uh, have this very subtle or not so subtle habit of hurting ourselves when we're caught in the tension of dealing with the difficult. I don't mean just cutting, like those kinds of experiences that some people have had to deal with, but uh, little ways where there's, uh, we, we do things that abuse ourselves through diet or through we, we actually move in the world in a way that we end up uh, beating up ourselves in some way or we abuse alcohol or drugs or something in a way or lack of sleep our overeating, the ways that we're physically hurting ourselves because we're so mad at ourselves. Mindfulness is such an antidote, compassionate mindfulness to these things. Or then there is the fact that our nervous system becomes really tense and we're jumpy, we're restless, and our mind's always moving around in some way. And it's very prone to irritation. This is an unskillful response that's just happening. It's just natural. There's not any judging or comparing to it, but there's a kind of tenderness of bringing our wisdom, bringing our deepest intention as to how we wish to be to any human being. And you are not an exception in terms of every human being. To what you intend to all human beings, uh, the Buddha says over and over again, to include ourselves. So we're not an exception in how easily we will make ourselves an exception to that. How easily. Or you may feel your energy collapse around a particular kind of difficult. You may have a pattern of your energy collapsing around that particular kind of difficult. Or you may go numb. It's quite a common thing. 
around the difficult. To there be a kind of numbness somewhere in the body or uh, uh, some kind of numbness even around the emotional body. Or you may become apathetic. It's very easy to become apathetic because we feel defeated and we don't then know what to do next when we feel defeated. And from the Buddhist point of view, you just keep right on practicing. You've got to practice with something. So now you're practicing with the difficult. And it's no different than if you're practicing with a great, uh, wonderful thing that's happened in your life. Non-clinging, non-grasping, uh, letting loose of the greed around it, letting loose of the aversion around it, letting loose of the, of the uh, delusion around it. It's just one more practice. And when, it, when our life starts to become practice in this way, it becomes empowering. We move from a reactive mind to a responsive mind. A reactive mind is like a puppet on two strings. If it's pleasant, oh, we want it. If it's unpleasant, we don't want it. And that's, that's a reactive mind. It'll go then into all of these kinds of hindrances of the mind, as the Buddha described it. A responsive mind is a mind that has choice. This is really unpleasant. But I can choose how I'm going to relate to this unpleasantness. Doesn't mean the unpleasantness goes away, but my sense of empowerment, my sense of well-being in relation to that unpleasantness is what changes. And again, I describe that in great detail. Or you may, you may feel a kind of vulnerability, a kind of helplessness, even that you're losing it. And you know, one of these things that, uh, this is one of these little secrets that... Uh, I work in my other life uh, with the Life Balance Institute. I work with very successful people, you know, and uh, 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 sometimes the people sitting on my couch that you've read about in the papers or something. And everybody has feelings of times of vulnerability. Everybody feels helpless. Everybody feels as though they're losing it sometimes. This is a human trait. It's not that you're part of some group or I'm part of some small group that we're, we're particularly inadequate in our lives. Now, this is a natural feeling. I, there was a, uh, a young man who's kind of a hero in the um, technology world who, uh, who came to see me. And um, I, I, as I was listening to him, because I, I always ask, well, so why are you here and all? And he started talking. And I realized that this hero was this close to having a mental breakdown. This close. Because the pressure of having to save the day one more time had gotten to him. And he was not sure he could save the day in this situation. And he couldn't face it. And in many ways, his thinking had this feeling of, I'd rather be dead than face this. It was a very serious situation which, which, uh, which, in which I immediately, in that very time, involved a, th- a therapist that I had him go see the next day because I was very concerned. And th- th- this is an extreme example, but I give it because uh, a lot of times we can feel as though we're losing it and we, don't, we can't stay mindful of that. So we can't be tender towards ourselves because we jump into some sort of overcompensation the other way. We go turn on the television set and start clicking or we go to the internet or we go pick a fight with our significant other because we're so afraid. We don't trust our practice enough to, oh, wow, feeling like I'm losing it feels like this. This uncertainty that I'm going to hold this together feels like this. And we don't think, oh, this is a lot of suffering. And we start to do our metta practice. But we can. We can remember all of this. Mindfulness has this sati. Sati is the uh, Pali word for mindfulness. It has this remembering quality to it. it. Its root is in this word remembering. What are we remembering? From my point of view, we're remembering our intention to meet this moment in a certain way. Again, I described this at length in Emotional Chaos to Clarity. We're remembering our intention to practice, remembering to be mindful, remembering to be loving kindness. I call that intention, this intentionality, to live an intentional life. In the Dharma, walking the path, we're living an intentional life, the path of being present with certain qualities regardless of conditions. And this is the alchemy that changes us over time. We become liberated, we become of capacity that we didn't know we had. 
So just again, let's pause for a moment, come back into your body and just think in terms of yourself, which of these patterns maybe that, that you tend to have. So we'll just pause for a moment. Now, are you judging that pattern? Can you let loose of the judging? Can you just be with those things you recognize and have a tenderness towards them as opposed to a compulsion to fix them? In the Dharma, we learn that if we stay present with kindness, the moment self-liberates. If we show up, the Dharma will do us. That takes a lot of faith. And so you start out with sort of small things that are challenging and move to larger things. And let that go. So what we learn is that through wise intention and wise mindfulness, two of the Eightfold Path, the Four Noble Truths, that we can learn to direct our attention to ways that are skillful in living with the difficult. And that we already know many skillful things we can do. We're just not remembering that we know and we're not remembering to do so. And that is why this, uh, this uh, capacity of intention needs to be developed. Because without the intention, all of what we know, our wise understanding, which is also part of the Eightfold Path, never comes into our lives. There's this gap between wise understanding and our, our thoughts and words and actions and our livelihood. There's a, there's a gap, and that gap gets filled by intention, developing of intention, intentionality. It's all ing in the Dharma, actually. It's not like we become intention. There is intentioning, just like there, there is understanding. It's, it's a verb. It's a, the, 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 the Buddha taught in a language that had little nouns and many verbs. And we, but we've sort of taken the Dharma and made it uh, these, uh, these kind of uh, nouns, these states, as opposed to this showing up this moment, showing up this moment, showing up this moment. And so we learn that we can move our attention skillfully. A couple of things that helped that in general... One is that we cultivate in easy times, in good times, a relaxed attention. Relaxed attention. I'm, uh, next month we'll be teaching the concentration retreat and uh, where we teach people how to collect and unify the mind. And this is what we start with, with uh, having people practice relaxed attention. So what's the difference? So bring your left hand up, palm facing uh, sideways, you're par- you know, perpendicular to yourself. And now take your right palm and start to push into the left palm. Really push, don't hurt yourself, but you, but you push with some strength. You don't learn very much from that. And you're going to get tired fast, right? And there's going to be a lot of stress. Let that go. Now, people oftentimes will think that the alternative to that is to either stay away, bring your hand back up, you stay away, or you just lightly touch. You just lightly touch your hand. But see how hard it is. So you're just barely touching. You can't stay touching. Can you see how tiring that is too? And yet that's often how we relate in our mind to our experience. So there you are. You've just gotten this uh, this, uh, difficult diagnosis back, you've just gotten this, uh, heard this news about your daughter or your son, and it's difficult, it's difficult, it's difficult. Or about the world, you know, the, the, what's happening, pick the country, what's happening in the world, you know, and it's difficult. So we either get real indignant and we want to push at it and our system gets hard, or we pull away completely, or we just hover because we can't really bear it. Now bring your hand back up and now just rest the palms very gently together in the namaste position. Now notice how easy this is, how supportive, and notice that you can feel all of these things about your left palm and left fingers. 
you can feel. And you can even feel the right hand. This is the value of relaxed attention. It allows us to soften into our experience. When we soften into our experience, then we can remember how we intend to relate to any condition, to any experience. If we go hard, we also go blank. We forget. We get dumb. It's just a natural response. That hardness is as though we were in a fight-or-flight situation. But we're not in the savanna in Africa like our forefathers. We're in this ongoing, it's there 24-7, that the medical diagnosis doesn't go away. It's not some animal that's confronting us that we either want to run away from or kill and eat. It's not that kind of a situation. And yet we haven't necessarily developed this capacity of relaxed attention that can soften into. This is the way to use the mindfulness and intention to deal with the difficult. And doing this, it certainly helps to have developed the habit of awareness of the body, as I've said at the break. And I really hope that you uh, will explore that for yourself. Everybody's got their own version of that. There's not one version. You cannot like your body, you cannot like being in the body and all of this, and still develop this. So just as you are with all of your attitude, you can still develop this, this uh, strong relationship where you have access to body awareness as a way to ground. And it will pay off in spades, to use a bridge term, in your, um, in your times of difficulty. And also learning to be aware of emotions. So you're just aware of the emotion you're feeling right now. You're not doing anything about it. Oh, I'm a little irritated. Okay, so you're a little irritated. Oh, I'm a little anxious. You're just noticing this. You're not, you're not constantly looking. You're not like the cat waiting to pounce at the mouse hole because that's not relaxed attention. It's much more a sense of, oh, look at this. Here's irritation. Oh, here's excitement. I'm feeling pretty good in this moment. And you start to feel the ever-changing flow of it. And it gives you a sense of being in relationship to your own emotional body. And if we don't have this relationship with our emotional body, when the difficult arises, then we're really you know, struggling. Because there's these strong emotions. And we're not used to dealing with even uh, uh, regular emotions with awareness, with, uh, with an intentionality. So it becomes uh, incumbent on us to learn this as best we can. And then to always be interested around the difficult. What is our pattern? Do we have a, a top ten tunes? What's our number one pattern we like when we run into the difficult? It might be blame. It might be tuning out all of those things I mentioned. But what is that? And what is the old stories or the old story that comes up when something difficult comes up in our life? You know, it's always been like this for me. My family's cursed, whatever it is. It's just, I'm always the one who's going, it's always going to happen to me, whatever that story is. And to recognize how that story is limiting us before we ever get started. Or to notice in the same way uh, that how we are taking birth in this difficulty. So yes, this is really difficult. But there's all of these other things in our life that are quite wonderful. And we forget. We forget that we have the joy of being mobile, that our legs work if our legs do work, that we can be in nature if we are able to be in nature, and on and on and on, that our minds work. And so we, we get all out of balance in relation to the difficult because of this tendency to over-identify, to cling, to grasp. We are hardwired in the mind, in the brain, hardwired in the brain to center on the difficult, to make all of our focus on the difficult. Because biologically, from where we started, that was what was needed to take care of ourselves and to thrive. But in this this continuity of the difficult that modern life has in it, that is is not such a well-balanced thing. And so we, when we see what the Buddha refers to as grasping, as taking birth in the difficult, I am, I am this cancer person. I am this person who's broke. 
as opposed to seeing it as a condition in which this awareness is having to be with. When we take birth, we get defined by a condition. When we, and then we're falling into reactive mind. When we don't take birth in that situation, we are only characterized, not defined, but characterized by that same difficult situation. We haven't taken birth. And we're not in the reactive mind, we're in the responsive mind. The sense of well-being, even if there's nothing externally we can do about a situation, the way we relate is night and day. This the Buddha taught over and over again in terms of clinging and non-clinging. Over and over. Grasping and non-grasping. Greed and non-greed. And we see this as true for ourselves right now in our daily lives. We don't have to be sitting on retreat on the cushion. It's wonderful if we get to do that. Wonderful, great things will happen over time doing that. But so can that occur in our daily lives. And therefore, the, the very thing that is uh, what first appears to be a hindrance in our life, if applied in a certain way, becomes a means of liberation. The difficult is both an obstacle and a means of liberation simultaneously. Not an easy teacher, but nonetheless a teacher. Another thing we can do is we can look at the language we use around the difficulty, the inner language we use, and the outer language we use. Do we use victim language? Do we use blaming language? Do we use helpless language? Language shapes us in so many ways. So be interested, be mindful of language in this way. And then we can learn to reframe our experience according to our aspirations of living from the, to, from the inner to the outer rather than to have the outer define us. We move from the inner to the outer. We move from our practice to life rather than letting conditions in our life inhibit or imprison our practice, inhibit or imprison our own sense of well-being. And so there starts to be this movement in relation to the difficult that we can, we can start to do. I'm not... Uh, I stop at 5 after 9, 15 after, so... Okay, I'll do a few more moments here then on that. There's uh, one area of difficulty that... Um, um, I bring up with, with some hesitation because it is, it in some ways, uh, it's the toughest for many of us many times. And that's what I call personal defeat and overcoming the difficulty of personal defeat. And personal defeat, uh, as I define it in emotional chaos to clarity, is, has a certain uh, actionable uh, definition. And by that I mean that it is a situation where we believed that we had this capacity to achieve something or to bring something about or to receive something or were worthy of receiving something, but we were unable to bring about that outcome. So we felt as though we could do it, and we didn't. You know? If, 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 you know, if it's beyond our capacity... It's a different kind of thing. If it happens to us, you know, if everybody gets laid off at work, that's not a personal defeat. But if we didn't get chosen, it can feel like a personal defeat. If, if, if we weren't able to build the financial security we want, if we weren't able to find the relationship we wanted, if we weren't able to have a child and we wanted to have a child, it can feel very personal to us, not this impersonal. And yet, in every personal, there is at the root an impersonal. And there's four kinds of personal defeat that I, I talk about when I'm teaching this material. The, the first is a personal defeat in relation to the external world. We wanted to accomplish something, and we didn't. It could be that we failed, or we never got the opportunity, or we weren't recognized in some way. It just We failed. That can either define our lives or not define our lives. We have that capacity of choice. But if we don't recognize it, we can take birth. I am the person who failed. There may have been all these other ways we succeeded, but I am this person. And we can spend years in that. I describe 
many people uh, going through this in, in the book. We can also fail in terms of our inner experience. So first, the kind of personal defeat was external. And then this is failing ourselves. And it can really feel like a personal defeat. We may not have felt as though we stayed true to ourselves. And so in some situation, we acted in a way where we weren't being true to ourselves. And it really gets us. We can't get over it. We lay ourselves on and on because of that. And we don't recognize that the, the pain of it alone was enough. We don't need to punish ourselves anymore. And it certainly doesn't define us. In that moment, we failed. But that doesn't mean that who is present now would do that same thing. And so we're developing our capacity. And the emphasis is on developing the capacity, not on the fact that we failed ourselves. Or the other kind of failing ourselves is that we failed to live up to our own dreams of what we would do. We never stepped up to the plate and swung the bat. We never said, I'd like to do that. We never, we never tried to learn the language or to learn the piano or whatever it is. And this, this sense of failure can be running around in there and we've never treated it with compassion in this way. It's different than uh, that's, this failure to, uh, uh, to failing ourselves in this way of failing our dreams. It's not that we, we had to make choices in our life. When I was a freshman in college, I, for a very short period of time, studied the stand-up bass. And I really wanted to do that. I really, what I really wanted to do was play jazz. And I, but I couldn't do everything. I was having to pay my way through college and I was in a band and I, was, I had a lot of different things to do. And I couldn't give myself that chance. I had to make a choice. I don't consider that a personal defeat in that same way. I just had to make a choice. As it turned out, as a musician in general, I wasn't that good. <laughs> and that felt like a personal defeat of a kind, right? And, but then as one lets loose of that, Okay, so you're not good at something. You're not good at something. I took my swing at the bat in that way, and I wasn't good at it. And it's okay. And it's, I, people have such trouble accepting this. But you, you may have t- taken your best swing at, at, at finding your true love, and it didn't happen. And that's okay. And then this, you know, I don't know if you remember this old song about love the one you're with. They, that, there's, it turns out that if you stop mourning that true love you didn't have, you can actually find all of this love for another partner, but also in these other facets of your life. But if you take birth in this, oh, I didn't, I couldn't, then you deny yourself this. There's no kindness in that. There, there's no in, 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 intention of growth, of well-being, of letting the heart be open. And we learn in the Dharma to open the heart, that, the, that our fear, our greed, our aversion, our uncertainty, it closes the heart. But as we learn to be with it, with this intentionality and this mindfulness, the heart opens. The mind can be more spacious. In a very practical way, I am not a sentimental person about these things. I am very practical. I came from a very uh, uh, practical, needy background, to survival was based on practicality. And I spent all the years, not as a Dharma bum, but as actually a leader in the world. So I'm very practical oriented. And my draw to the Dharma, which has been there all my adult life, this, growth to the, this draw to the inner life, is in a practical way that of practically finding freedom. Practically finding freedom. So then the third kind of failure is failure in relationship, personal failure is failure in relation to another person. And boy, does that hurt, you know, when we failed another person in some way. May have been our son or our daughter, may have been a good friend. We weren't there when they were having a difficult time or we didn't stand up for them when the crowd turned against them and we weren't there to stand up for them. Or it may be our lover, that we failed our lover in some way or our parent, or just another person. And to recognize this as a natural phenomena. We're not special when this happens to us. It's ordinary. 
It's part of life. It is this dukkha. And there is a path to dealing with dukkha so that we don't get stuck in it. And then the fourth kind of personal failure is I, again, there's other ways you could divide all this, but in my practical way of working with people, I've found most helpful, is failure in relation to an organization or a group. That organization or group may be your family of origin. Or it may be your own family that you gave birth to and it didn't work out and, and you had a personal failure. And maybe it feels like it was your fault or maybe it feels like it was the other person's fault, your spouse's fault or whatever it may be. But there's a sense of personal failure in it. Again, this is, this is part of life. It's not separate. It is not something that would isolate us insofar in as we say, no, I will not be isolated by this. I am part of the human family, and humans make these kinds of mistakes. What am I going to do with this? What am I going to learn from it? And what way will I bring more love into this moment and the future moments? So that the failure becomes a harvest of wisdom, a motivation of intention, awakening to aspiration. This is the Eightfold Path. This is the Eightfold Path. So our very life, all of these kinds of personal defeat, they too become part of it. To just read you a poem about this that I like. This is my latest favorite book of poems. It's called What Narcissism Means to Me <laughs> by Tony Hoagland. It's got a lot of Dharma in it. And this particular poem is called I find it, disappointment. And it's really got two separate parts to it, to my ear. You may not hear it this way, but I hear it this way. Disappointment. I was feeling pretty religious standing there on the bridge in my winter coat, looking down at the gray water, the sharp little waves dusted with snow, fish in their tin armor. That's what I like about disappointment, the way it slows you down when the querulous, insistent chatter of desire goes dead calm. And the minor roadside flowers pronounce their quiet colors and the red dirt of the hillside glows. Isn't that beautiful? The way it slows you down when the querulous, insistent chatter of desire goes dead calm. You know what it's like when you have a personal defeat. You just, it sort of stops you when there's a big disappointment, when it's difficult. And the minor roadside flowers pronounce their quiet colors. When we really accept our defeat in this way, it opens us up for a moment. We're temporarily freed. Sometimes, if we're, oh, wow. Because I'm not about grasping. I've gotten so defeated in my grasping that I can't be grasping for anything in this moment. So if we really let loose, if we kind of accept this kind of surrender, we're actually more present, more alive. And this is true when things are really scary. As we learn to move our attention, you can be so afraid. And then as you move your attention around, yes, there's that fear But in the foreground is all of these wonderful things. And then here comes the fear into the foreground again and back and forth. Continuing. She played the flute. He played the fiddle. And the moon came up over the barn. Then he didn't get the job. Or her father died before she told him that one most important thing. And everything got still. It was February or October. It was July. I remember it so clear. You don't have to pursue anything ever again. It's over. You're free. You're unemployed. You're not caught in the grasping. You're not working at getting somewhere. Something has knocked you so far back that you can't, for this moment, be caught in the wanting. Use it as a moment of awakening. Wake up. Look around in the midst of the difficult. See what you can see that you would not ordinarily see. See what you can appreciate that you would not ordinarily appreciate. You just have to stand there 
looking out on the water in your trench coat of solitude with your scarf of resignation lifting in the wind. We fall into this moment in which we are so isolated by the difficult. We're in this trench coat of solitude and we have this scarf of resignation around our neck. Oh, defeat. Wake up. See what that feels like. The difficult feels like this. Personal defeat feels like this. What else is available? How do I want to relate to this condition? How would I relate to this condition if it was my good friend, if it was my 10-year-old? How would I relate to that child having this sense of the difficult? Would I not be there with love, with attention? Would I not hold and be saying there is more to life than this? Why will we not do this for ourselves? Why will we not do it? Why will we not choose to investigate in the way the Buddha teaches? Why will we not look for the freedom in any condition, even if it's a difficult condition? Ah, so living with the difficult. You've been very, very attentive. Thank you so much for doing so. We're going to sit together for just a moment, and then we'll end our evening. And we're sitting together to dedicate the merit of our time. And I go through a certain little uh, protocol here and see if it's of help to you. So first notice the body, uh, particularly around the belly. Tuning into your intuition. As we've explored being mindful of the difficult, what has your intuition got to say to you? What do you know intuitively? Just this moment. Shift attention to the heart space. Emotionally, what do you feel? What does your heart want to tell you? What does your heart know about the difficult? What does your heart need in terms of the difficulty in your life right now? Shift your attention to the head center. What are these thoughts, these judgments, these comparisons, these views, these opinions, maybe images that are occurring in the head, the brain giving you one image after another? Is the mind moving fast? Is it racing? Is there a lot of inner dialogue or very little? Is there a practical thing? Oh, his saying this says to me, I need to do X or Y. The intuitive knowing, the heart's knowing, the head center knowing. There is an integration of these available. As our evening of practice comes to a close, we offer any merit that may have accumulated to us individually and together to the benefit of all being. May this merit help others in their time of difficulty. May we be more able to be present with ourselves and with others in their time of difficulty through the merit of this practice. May it be our aspiration to live wisely, to live tenderly with the difficult through the merit of this practice. And as this merit of practice spreads out to our loved ones, to all of those we know, to all of those we encounter, may they in turn live more and more easily with the difficult. May they move towards the end of their suffering just as we aspire.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.